Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode features coverage of the European Society of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases Conference on Coronavirus Disease. During this podcast, Dr. Barbara Rath, co-founder and chair of the Vienna Vaccine Safety Initiative, will discuss important new data presented at the virtual ECCVID conference, including new data on COVID-19 screening and diagnostics, vaccines, prevention strategies, and therapeutics. For more information on Dr. Rath and for a link to additional online CCO coverage of the virtual ECCVID conference, including a downloadable slide set covering the studies discussed in this episode, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Rath has to say about these new data. Thank you so much, dear listeners, and I'm happy to uh, help you through some of the amazing wealth of information that was conveyed during last week's ECRIT meeting. It's been very interesting to see how uh, people from different parts of the world converge uh, to share knowledge and to look at what they uh, what they have to uh, present already this early. If we think about it, it's been a recent pandemic, uh, uh, you know, dealing with a pathogen that we knew next to little about, a uh, little uh, to nothing about um, only a few uh, months ago. And, uh, you know, we're wrapping our head around so many different aspects. So what we did is we selected a few presentations that are trying to give you a well-rounded overview of some things you may or may not have heard about COVID yet, while also um, sort of sharpening clinical skills of those who are you know, at the front line, or those of you who, are, who may uh, be encountering COVID patients in the time to come, to give you more of a visual impression um, of what, what goes on in your patients and also to understand where we are with uh, vaccine development and some of the important tools that we're hoping to have in the near future. Um, so we're starting with a presentation uh, on contact tracing in Singapore uh, by Professor Vernon Lee, who's really a, a major expert in the field. He's been a key person in the international influenza uh, world. He's been actually chairing the last options conference for those of you who are familiar with that meeting on the control of influenza, which deals with influenza, but also other respiratory viruses. I picked this one because Singapore obviously had experience from the SARS outbreak uh, in 2003. Uh, So they were more probably quicker to jump on the bandwagon and to see that we need to do something uh, to contain uh, what looked like something that was spreading way too fast, especially in densely populated areas uh, such as uh, Singapore. Um, One of the things he emphasized that was really important to so him and his team was number one, to prevent disease, to keep safe management measures in place, uh, to detect new cases quickly, to care for those new cases adequately, uh, and to strengthen the capacity of the healthcare system to be able to deliver in that respect. And then also to, to do contact tracing as the fourth column, if you wish, of, of that um, program in order to uh, make sure that the healthcare delivery doesn't collapse at any time uh, during this uh, outbreak control. Um, so what they were doing is contract tracing in Singapore was, of course, very different from what many Europeans are familiar with, a lot more extensive than we probably could do in the West. 
nevertheless, it's important to see what they were thinking about <clears throat> and what they were doing in order to contain uh, the early phase of the outbreak quite successfully. So they say that mapping for them occurs backward and forward uh, to insern, uh, discern infection sources. What that means is when you do contract tracing, you're by definition a little bit behind the curve. Um, you know, you're basically trying to find out the contacts that somebody has been in touch with in the past uh, two or so weeks, uh, which means even if they got exposed, this already happened. So what they were trying to do is they were trying to pull multiple data sources, uh, including CCTV cameras and personal movement patterns, uh, some AI analysis on that in order to identify clusters early and to have a very targeted response in these hotspots before they had a chance to grow. And I remember from conversations with a colleague in Singapore that you know there were times when uh, college dorms were becoming uh, hotspots or construction sites. And, and the ability to identify these very early in the game was instrumental to, to stopping something before it could spread too much. Um, so this is multi-pronged uh, data analysis. As I said, there would be, and I have friends in this area that work on the privacy preserving uh, uh, analysis world, there are more modern tools that are coming forward to make these things uh, more timely and also um, more respectful of people's individual privacy. Uh, I am not an expert on how that played out in Singapore per se, uh, but uh, it's just an idea for you as a provider to see how many aspects of data could potentially be useful for um, a near real-time contract tracing that will also deliver the advice to the person on what they should be doing next. Uh, what I found uh, quite surprising and what definitely I don't think I could see in Europe is that if you were identified uh, as a subject that had to be quarantined, then you had to give very frequent uh, information to the system of where you were uh, etc., which is, of course, a tight level of control that has all kinds of implications that uh, are, are not to be ignored. Um, uh, so what they did do is they used this app between April and September, and they have really been able to, to identify 337 individuals that became cases after isolation. Uh, what they are clear on here is as you pull different ways of, of uh, you know, integrating data into your system, the more timely your identification of cases becomes, uh, and the closer you get to the moment of transmission where you can actually still make a difference. This is important because uh, for two things. Number one, vaccine effectiveness surveillance will be potentially benefiting from a system like this where we can see whether those who are vaccinated in the system hopefully see less cases uh, or less severe cases um, or are less affected. And also the, the impact of potential treatment modalities could be uh, analyzed using the baseline data and maybe comparing what you see after we introduce hopefully some effective measures to control the few cases that they see at the moment. That's just a little outlook, but uh, an idea of the complexity of what goes into these systems and, and how hard it is to understand what is going on in a very densely populated city at any time.
Um, the next topic that I thought was quite uh, stunning uh, was a presentation on asymptomatic SARS-2 cases in Switzerland. Uh, this is what you have seen in the, in the pre-testing question, so you'll soon learn something about that. Uh, it was done at the University Hospital in Basel, uh, an excellent uh, presentation from this team, uh, Dr. Sutter and, and her team. So um, the, what they did is they basically looked at the asymptomatic cases that came into their hospital system. They extended um, you know, surveillance to include everybody who showed up in the system between April and June and wanted to know uh, how people tested for SARS-CoV within 72 hours of admission. Uh, that said, uh, some of us epidemiologists and researchers and clinicians have been fighting for a long time to be better at screening patients regardless of what our individual clinical suspicion is and to create a greater level of equity basically in, in terms of what we do with patients when they show up in a hospital. And this was quite successfully done in this particular example. As you could see, uh, the asymptomatic and symptomatic determination was then done by retroactive case classification. So number one, you include everybody uh, and test everybody uh, to get our own biases out of the picture. And then you create uh, case definitions to classify and analyze these data. Uh, very soon, they've had some around 4,000 samples and patients in this in this picture, and uh, now you can see that about 25% of these patients were positive. Uh, and here you can see that a lot of the patients were asymptomatic. Um, and you can see that six patients were positive for SARS uh, and were asymptomatic. So this is kind of the Venn diagram, the overlap of these two groups. Um, so this means of those few cases that they found, uh, um, you know, they had a small number of asymptomatic cases, which I want you to remember. Um, so, um, so if we look at these uh, asymptomatic cases, about 0.16% were uh, positive for SARS-CoV. Um, then you have a proportion of asymptomatic patients uh, that remain similar over time. Uh, this is something that I'm sure that will continue over the next winter to see if, if that ratio remains stable, if you see more virus circulating in the community or whether that's about to change. Uh, that's yet to be looked at. Um, so the prevalence of asymptomatic infections, uh, it was there. Uh, it suggests that if you if you do universal screening, the cost-benefit ratio in this particular setting may be a challenge. Uh, I think that's yet to be discussed because there is a benefit, you know, to be able to reassure patients. And of course, there's a, a grander scheme of infection control uh, in the hospital, which is mentioned here. Um, so if, you, if you're able to identify patients quickly as they're being hospitalized and you're able to isolate patients from the rest of the hospital, this will save lives and potentially protect people who have underlying conditions and other problems. Um, the next, uh, next study was um, done by uh, Dr. Basil uh, in, in Australia, uh, looking at uh, cell-based cultures of SARS-CoV-2 for infectivity termination. 
Um, why is that important for CME? Uh, the main reason I would say is that all of you probably have heard the argument that, okay, if somebody's PCR positive, does that mean they're actually infectious? And and how long does the infectious virus linger in somebody's system before they are no longer contagious? Uh, this actually dovetails with the previous presentation because down the road, let's say you have identified a patient symptomatic or asymptomatic and you have isolated them in your hospital, the question is how long do you have to do that? Is there a specific time frame or a specific test that can tell you that it's time to de-isolate the patient and free up the room after de decontamination for another person who may need it. So these are very practice-oriented research projects that, that are important for us to know about as we plan our work. Um, what was done here specifically from the virology side is that SARS-CoV RNA samples were tested on vera cells. Vera cells are a typical cell, cell culture system that's used for, for SARS and coronaviruses. And then you inspect them daily for a cytopathic effect. Uh, that's something that has been done, for those of you who are familiar with it, uh, with these shell bioassays, with CMV uh, diagnostics, for example, where you really you know, lay out the cell layer and you put uh, your sample on top and you, you check daily through the, through the uh, layer of cells that have been exposed potentially to virus, whether you start seeing these morphological changes to the cell culture. Um, it's important to confirm that. It, it takes some skills to do it. I would say not every lab is able, uh, easily able and willing to do that. But in this particular study, it was done in order to teach us uh, about where we stand with, with typical COVID cases. Um, and then uh, the idea was also to see if by day four, the, if you did, did you not see a cytopathic effect uh, to run another PCR of the supernatant, supernatant is basically the liquid that is on top of the cell layer to see if anything could be shown in the PCR still. And, uh, and then to see whether positive culture basically uh, was less positive after several days or not. Um, so the positive culture is importantly identify that if it, you basically saw a positive culture, if a CT value was reduced by three cycles versus the original sample, that, which means the CT value is inversely proportional with uh, the amount of virus. So after a certain amount of virus, uh, the cell culture, as sort, sort of, sorry, after a certain amount of virus, the PCR uh, reflected uh, also positive cell culture. So CT value is the cycle threshold of PCR, meaning how many cycles does your PCR have to run until it sees a positive signal. Uh, and that means, of course, the less times you have to repeat your PCR cycles in order to find a positive PCR signal, the more virus you have in the initial sample, if that makes sense. So if you look at the ICU patients, the outpatients and the regular inpatients, the percentage of positive culture, meaning infectivity of the patient, is of course a lot higher in the ICU than it was among outpatients. Uh, so this has a nice correlation clearly between virus load and the rate of infectivity depending on disease severity of these particular patients. 
And the next slide shows this again in a very nice visual way. Uh, so basically, as your PCR CT values slowly climb up, uh, meaning your virus load declines, I don't know if you can see my cursor here, <laughs> um, then you also start seeing receding culture positivity uh, at around the same time. And to the right, the graph basically, you have to read it from the right to the left after a certain amount of virus, <clears throat> after a certain amount of of uh, cycle thresholds, you start seeing your positive cultures uh, uh, popping up uh, in these samples. So this is a nice relationship between PCR positivity and infectivity, which may have implications for those of us concerned about infection control. Uh, if you can do this on a very large scale, and you can say that a certain uh, CT threshold of, of a PCR is more likely to to mean something in relation to infectivity, then you can have sort of a clinical guidance a little bit to help you, uh, you know, deal with your patients. Uh, we're not there yet, and this of course needs a lot of uh, multi-center validation studies, but the thought is here. And for you to remember now is, if a patient has a highly positive PCR, they're more likely to be infectious than if it's a if it's a, um, a low positive PCR, which ha would have a high CT value. All right, enough about the lab. Uh, here is a, is a completely different view of what COVID does to patients. Um, and that's really a, a stunning talk by Susanna Varga from the Institute of Pathology at the University of Zurich. Um, she uh, reminded us that um, COVID is not simply a respiratory disease. It is a lot more than that. Those of us in the in the influenza field have been saying similar things for a while about influenza as well. Here with COVID it is very striking and what we're trying to learn from pathology analysis is what makes it unique. Are there things that we can see in the tissue uh, that are specific to COVID and that makes sense in relation to what we already know from immunological analyses, from biomarkers, looking at epithelial damage, uh, from hemorrhagic disease in these patients and clinical signs and symptoms that we observe. Um, and they're very interesting pathology findings. I've only picked a few for you here. Um, so for example, uh, the work that they did at the University Hospital in Zurich, uh, this is very beautiful, uh, imagery, uh, not so beautiful for those who suffer exactly those findings. Um, so this is pulmonary vessel histology, where you can see that the inflammation in the lining of, of, uh, of the pulmonary vessels is so massive that the lumen is also restricted, of course, and that you, you basically constrict the space that is there for blood to flow. Uh, we can imagine similar things uh, having to do with uh, you know, patients who suffered stroke or myocardial infarction during COVID. Uh, it's quite possible from other analyses that we've seen that this is part of the underlying mechanism. So you see a huge uh, uh, influx of lymphocytes in the, in the tissue here in the endothelial cells and that in, in and by itself then leads to secondary effects of the disease that don't look like your normal uh, respiratory infections. 
Um, so signs of endothelial cell disruption during COVID are seen in multiple tissues, as I mentioned, so in the lungs and the small intestine, the kidneys, myocardium and liver. Uh, you can see small thrombi in the lung and small intestine with mesenteric ischemia. And you see atoptosis, so shedding off of some of these endothelial cells into the lumen, which of course may also help to trigger clots and other clot formation, other things uh, down the road. Um, this was seen with a different type of, of uh, scanning uh, and staining, and uh, this is very important to observe. Um, I've also seen very interesting recent data from a different group on, on uh, in situ analyses of the, the uh, olfactory nerve, which may explain some of the, the altered perception of, of smell and taste. And so as we go forward, there are cerebral findings with COVID. So as we go forward, I think it's very important to think about it as, we, as clinicians, how to work with pathologies ideally pre-mortem to really understand, you know, what is happening with patients. I do expect that there will be a few more biopsies happening maybe from ICUs as if they can to try and deliver material to the pathologist to allow them to, to test for some of these effects and to help you in your decision-making, hopefully before it is too late. Um, and also help us in general to think about more ways of treating patients, at least symptomatically, and supporting them through this. Um, so the, they're the classical smear and swabs. What was new to me is also that the RT-PCR from, from uh, uh, these formalin-fixed uh, uh, paraffin-embedded uh, pre uh, preparations are actually fine for their PCR and testing. I was always taught that the moment the surgeon has dropped their sample in, in this kind of uh, liquid, it would inhibit the PCR, but apparently things have gone better since then. Um, there's also uh, the fish and, and SISH analysis, which is basically fluorescent and, and, and fluid analysis, uh, liquid analysis that, that works pretty well. Then there's immune histochemistry, which is really from uh, a slice of tissue and all kinds of other methods. The gold standard, of course, and the most expensive and, and difficult uh, analysis to do is electron microscopy. It's not something that you do to diagnose disease so that it's not sensitive enough. But if you want to know what's exactly going on on the molecular level or in the, in the tissue on a very small scale, um, this is a very important tool to have. Um, so then looking at these... Um, these broad uh, uh, observations made by pathologists uh, in situ hybridization apparently still really is an important part. Uh, you look for the virus first with RT-PCR and you see whether it's in the tissue or not. Uh, again, heart, kidney, liver, spleen, brain, and blood are important vehicles and vessels of the disease, basically. And when you think about the multiplicity of symptoms that patients describe, it is important as providers to take these symptoms seriously and to have an open mind when we talk to patients to not overlook something that's important. It also helps us better understand if we see liver enzymes or kidney uh, renal function tests uh, acting up, so to say, that we pay attention that this may be due to direct organ damage uh, from the virus itself, unless we, we prove it otherwise. 
Um, so there is viral tropism and we need to understand the pathophysiology and we need <clears throat> a lot of collaboration between the disciplines to do a better job here. Um, and again, uh, there was another study that was emphasized by her at the University of Tübingen in Germany, <clears throat> looking at four fatal cases. Uh, this was a phenomenal study done. And uh, some of you may have seen the reports that the colleague who did this work was one of the first patients himself in Germany affected by COVID-19. Uh, he was very interested in understanding the biomarkers and, and the different phases of illness. So this group emphasized that there's an early disease where you see a lot of neutrophilic activity, exudative capillaritis, these microthrombi <clears throat> that may have secondary organ manifestations and copious IL-1 beta and IL-6. And then it changes into more diffuse alveolar damage picture with intravascular thrombosis. As I said, as the endothelial starts uh, shedding uh, you know, apoptotic cells, you, you trigger coagulation potentially. Uh, then you see occasional infarction, mal maltransfusion of parts of your tissue due to all kinds of these factors. And then you see laboratory features that fit with DIC. Um, and in the late stages, you see organizing pneumonia with these fibroblasts that are trying to scar or heal over your tissue with metaplasia of the epithelium. Uh, if it doesn't go well, then this may lead to multi-organ failure. If you're able to save the patient through, you know, ECMO or other means, uh, some of patients have been described to have permanent lung damage and less of a, you know, the, uh, volume, lung volume after this is all over and needing long rehab. Um, then you have sort of the, the important question here was a, an autopsy study done in Graz in Austria, looking systematically in whether swab results and uh, results uh, reflected what they saw in the actual tissues. Uh, and this is post-mortem swabs. So this is done after the death of people, first in the morning, then later in the day, and then the first evening. And of course, as expected, you see a little bit of a lowering of uh, positivity, but it's still pretty good. So what this means to use, if you can get a swab, you may want to deliver that to your pathologist because they may still be able to help you do some very interesting uh, studies uh, to explain what happened and not, uh, not just to the patient. Uh, of course, in this case, it's not helpful to the patient themselves, but to their family to understand what really happened and what, what uh, created the problem here. Um, and to learn for all of us to prevent people from dying in the future. Um, so in the early samples, all of them were positive. You can see that declining a little bit, but to me, it was surprising how many detections were possible in this very busy slide. Um, <clears throat> the next study that we've picked to you is just an example, and I picked something more exotic here. I'm sure many of you have read about the, the studies of Calitra and Remdesivir uh, and hydroxychloroquine and whatnot uh, that have all been tested uh, in their usefulness with uh, SARS-CoV. I've picked a, a medication here that many of us haven't talked so much about. It's called Omifenavir, and it seems to be pretty well known <clears throat> as I read up on it in Russia and in China. It's a fusion inhibitor 
that is claimed to have broad antiviral effect against a number of viruses. It hasn't currently yet convinced the regulatory agencies or the investigators in the West, but it's always interesting to keep an open mind and see what people did here. And this was a study done in a, in a setting in Iran where you had a high infection rate. And the reason why I picked this presentation for you is because you know this is a substance that seemed to work in vitro. And now the question is, in a pandemic setting, how do you study this? And it's not been a simple time to study. Um, the clinical trial design is extremely challenging <clears throat> in this day and age. And you can see that just by looking at the control regimen. This is not your simple placebo-controlled study. Uh, these patients were receiving a multiplicity of antivirals with all kinds of different effects and side effects, uh, simply because that was at the time considered the standard of care in the setting where you are. And you know, you're getting in between a rock and a hard place because once something is considered standard of care, it is also considered unethical to withhold that from the patients who participate in your study. So you can see two arms and the other arm is basically all of the above plus one extra player on board. So these studies are very difficult to do. Of course, they need much higher numbers to say anything meaningful, but uh, they in their early analysis didn't see any statistically significant <clears throat> effect on mortality, the medium time to ventilation and a number of other clinical outcome measures that they were looking at here. I just added one more slide here. You don't need to read it all. This basically shows that there has been a meta-analysis <clears throat> and a systemic review done on this uh, substance, mostly in China, where people are quite familiar with this. Um, and it hasn't really come to fruition yet. Otherwise, I'm sure you would have heard about it. But this is just an example of how every single substance is being looked at for potential usefulness in managing patients with COVID. Then next is one of the big highlights of the uh, conference. Um, so Dr. Pollard, I take a zip of water while I let you read all of his um, titles. <laughs> so Andrew Pollard is the head of the Oxford Vaccine Institute. He's also a pediatrician and a fantastic uh, presenter and clinician at the same time. <coughs> Apologies. And he, um, he has given us a nice overview of um, the development of vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. Um, he has alerted to us that there are 36 candidate vaccines currently in development and in 146 in preclinical stages. So on the long haul, um, we do think there will be very useful vaccines coming out of this international effort. It is hard to predict who will be first. It looks like there might be multiple coming around around a similar time frame, uh, and different vaccines may be being used in different parts of the world. Um, so that makes it a bit difficult because not every study is looking at the same endpoints. That's something I had a chance to ask him afterwards. Um, this isn't is a concern. We will not be able to do very simple head-to-head -head comparisons not only because the populations are very different, but also because of course, criteria for hospitalization and ICU admission are not the same. Whether you do a study in let's say the UK or Brazil, for example. 
um, and different parts of Brazil, especially. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, what's important is that the anti-SARS-CoV spike protein has become a focus for uh, the responses that vaccine developers are looking for, uh, and then to try and see how neutralizing these antibodies are. Uh, and that has become sort of the classical way of looking at the uh, vaccine effect in the immediate, uh, you know, days after vaccination, really. Um, how that plays out as real-world vaccine effectiveness will then have to be studied, obviously, in much larger numbers. And that is where these trials become very expensive and very extensive, uh, no matter what. Um, so what is happening here is there are different approaches on evaluation. There has been a lot of innovation happening in that space uh, that maybe last year we would not have expected at this speed. Um, so there's there are spike protein nanoparticles uh, with matrix M, there's spike protein mRNA vaccines and liquid nanoparticles, there's spike protein DNA vaccines, and there are vaccines using adenovirus vectors, which is kind of what the Oxford vaccine group in particular is doing. So they're basically using a non-replicating sympathy adenovirus to have a safe model for vaccine delivery. Uh, what they do see from the early uh, antibody or neutralizing antibody assays is that you're likely to need two vaccine doses to come up to where you want to be uh, with your effect, uh, effectiveness and, and uh, with your down the road immune response of patients who have been vaccinated. That may not be optimal in a pandemic setting. Obviously, the logistics of delivering a vaccine twice to the same person is a lot more than giving it once. Um, but you know, you have to uh, walk a fine line between multiple priorities and, and important factors uh, for a vaccine. Uh, it has to give a, as much of protection as it possibly can. At the same time, you want it to be safe and not too reactogenic. So this is always a, a very careful risk-benefit evaluation to get a good vaccine out there that does the job. And if it needs to be given twice to do that job, then, then that, that's how it's going to be. Um, so um, be ready. We, those of you who are dealing with children uh, are familiar with that, with the seasonal flu vaccine. If a child is getting the flu vaccine for the first time in its life, then it's also receiving two doses in the first winter. And uh, that's maybe something comparable here that we need to be communicating with patients to understand that that's what's needed. Um, so what he did emphasize is there is an international trial now going on with this Oxford vaccine with many sites in the UK, several sites in Brazil and in South Africa. Uh, and he emphasized in particular that he finds this incredibly important to make sure that it doesn't just develop a vaccine that works in the United Kingdom, but also something that can be used in, uh, in low or middle income countries and in settings that are where something like uh, COVID-19 can create a lot of damage and a lot of uh, threat to people's already fragile healthcare systems. So that's why this is of major importance to him. Um, so the studies have started in phase two and three now in South Africa. Uh, they're planning 2,000 patients to be enrolled in these six sites. 
Brazil currently experiencing still a pretty large outbreak, plans to enroll 10,000 patients at three sites. Um, and then there is this what they call a nonlinear trial progression, which means that the trials take their time as they normally do, but instead of being in a linear way, like a string of pearls, which I'll show you in the next uh, slide, this here is staggered and, and crunched together so that multiple things are being started at the same time, so that the results will become available very quickly and with a short uh, short time frame from each other. Uh, that's the only way we can speed up development. You cannot be less thorough with any of these individual studies, but what you need to do is you have to just basically bet on your horse and do all these phases uh, in parallel, you know, and, 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 and trying to get these results in uh, quickly in order to speed up vaccine development. I hope that makes sense. And here, just as a comparison, is how this is normally done. Uh, so the trials are just as long and thorough as they are uh, in the picture above, but you don't basically start the phase one un uh, until you have finished the GMP, and then you start the phase two when the phase one has been thought about and pondered over. And, and there's a lot more um, time that goes into this than currently. What that means, if we go back to the previous slide, if I may, uh, this is a, a lot of extra work uh, for the regulators, as you can imagine, because they have to turn these things around a lot faster. They have to put more manpower on it. And this is also true for the clinical trial teams. They have to start planning phase two while phase one is still ongoing. And at the same time, analyze the data and make sure they, they pass each one of these qualifying steps just as they would normally. Which leads us to the ethical considerations. So as we are waiting for a vaccine to become available, uh, I thought this was an excellent presentation by Dr. Galazzi. Um, he is uh, an expert in infections in the elderly and one of the board members of ISGI, which is the ESCMID group uh, focused on infections in the elderly. And he's also dealing with a big, I think it's IMI project, dealing with uh, COVID in the elderly population. He, um, he has emphasized that we need to think through this carefully now as we uh, are no longer in the very early phase of the pandemic, how we deal with considerations on aging and COVID-19. And I, as an infectious disease person, but also pediatrician by training, really have compassion for these considerations because normally it's us who are the last to thought about whether, you know, the children come last in almost everything. Um, and we, we always say they're not small adults, they need their own research studies. And I can really empathize with uh, people who are experts in geriatric infectious diseases because it seems to be the same at the other end of the spectrum. Um, and we need to make sure we, we understand that there are different needs in this age group. The most important sentence I think that he said is that aging is heterogeneous. Okay, so there are very different effects on the genetic, socioeconomic, and behavioral factors. And it isn't the same for every single person. You may have very different groups of people in front of us, even though they all have a share the same age. Uh, they may have very different aspects of their, their uh, health that you need to pay attention to, uh, especially during these days. Um, so 
uh, he, he emphasized that in 2018, 88% of persons older than 75 years of age in the United States had no limitation activities of daily living. So, you know, you may say the above 90, the above 75 is, is the new above 50 or something. Um, we are advancing in our overall medical care and people are also a lot more active than they have been maybe in the past and they expect to be able to stay active and, and, and the, the medical care has to be fully aware of that and try and enable that as much as possible. Um, so if you, at the same time, there's a potential to that a single trigger may create a lot more of a complication than in the younger individual. Right? So as you take decisions in your healthcare, as families with uh, seniors in their house take precautions. These are things that we have known before and that are very important. Immobilization is a, always a bad idea. At the same time, you want to prevent falls that may lead then to somebody having to have, you know, uh, surgery of a broken leg, which then exposes them to the hospital uh, under COVID conditions, etc. Their behavioral aspects, their mental health aspects, and their chronic diseases that may be exacerbated. What's also important is that atypical presentations are more common uh, in elderly people. And that's also something that we as pediatricians say on a regular basis. It may not look like your uh, typical case, and yet you have to be alert and look at your patients thoroughly and have an open mind about it. Um, in the context of a stressed healthcare system, clinicians may push uh, age as a criterion to in the medical decision-making process. And this needs an international, I would say, ethical thinking process. There are experts in ethics that are active in this, and I know about those processes. And we need to think about as, uh, what our priorities are in a society and how we justify them. And it's not as simple as it may seem on the first uh, look. Um, you also have to remember that nursing homes are not ideal uh, not perfectly equipped for pandemic preparedness, clearly. Uh, there was one nursing home in France that had a case fatality rate of 39%. Uh, if you look at the confirmed cases, uh, you know, most of them were among residents, but also many, many among the staff. But the deaths and the, and the uh, uh, negative consequences uh, in general and the hospital deaths as well were clearly on the side of the residents. So if you work in any of these settings, be extra cautious, you know, get yourself tested if in doubt, and, and take all the measures you can to protect uh, this very vulnerable patient population. Um, adapting logistics is another topic here. So if you have ICUs that may become overwhelmed, there might, must be strategies in place ahead of time. Uh, it may be necessary to think about the triage policy that will also be equitable and will be applied to everyone then uh, in the same way so that it doesn't seem like, you know, one doctor does one and another does another thing on another day. Um, there are many things that are still unknown. It's not quite clear what long-term hospitalization or ICU stays do to older populations. There are studies underway to look at that and what the age limit may be for full recovery so that the hospitalization really does its job. Uh, if not, it would not be uh, a beneficial solution for some patients. 
um, there was a single French uh, long-term uh, uh, care facility that had 24 COVID-related deaths over five days, as I mentioned above. Uh, important is that most of these were also attributed to things that, that happened very fast. Uh, some uh, some uh, really uh, died from hypovolemic shock, which is interesting and, and something that is potentially treatable if, if identified early. Uh, ARDS was not on the top of the list uh, and protective masks and, uh, and help for overworked staff is important in order to prevent uh, these uh, symptomatic cases and to, to identify them early and to treat them and, and, and prevent hypovolemic shock. What's clear here is that French statistics have shown that younger populations didn't see much of an excessive death. Uh, the black line is the latest uh, winter. <clears throat> and the, the x-axis are the, the weeks, the calendar weeks. And you can see that actually in the youngest population, the death rates have gone down which may have to do with less accidents, which typically happen in that age groups and, you know, doing risky things outdoors. Uh, it's not fun for the kids and there was definitely, def definitely other long-term effects that we are studying now in the pediatric population with regards to mobility and mental health. But for the time being, the death rates in the young population went down, whereas the older you, uh, the population is, the more they have been going up. And what I found quite surprising is it's not just the elderly, as we say, but also the middle-aged population that already showed a striking increase in, in mortality and excess death in France. And, and uh, if you look at these different age cohorts, um, you know, they are showing a clear increase. And I, I thought that the 60 to 84-year-olds were really massively affected here. Um, this is a normally very active age group, as we mentioned, uh, that needs to be taken care of uh, as we learn. Um, so about that, I think what we do need to think, there are meta-analysis that have been done about the effect of age on mortality with COVID. Uh, you don't need to remember all of these numbers, but what I found striking about the slide is that they're very similar, right? So if you look at the odds ratios, here in the 70s to 79-year-old age group and the above 80-year-old age group, uh, among these different countries, they're surprisingly similar uh, and you're still roughly twice as likely to die uh, in, in most of these uh, settings if you reach a certain age and that needs to be preempted. A vaccine will do a great job to do that and we need to think of this population as we develop vaccines, of course. Now, um, this is basically a summary slide for this uh, topic. Uh, you have to factor and balance carefully a number of effects. You have to look at the severity of acute disease, which implies the risk of death and other adverse outcomes uh, with the benefit that you can give uh, and the physiological reserves that are there. Uh, there are experts in the field that can help you assess that. And, you know, there's a question what hospitalization does, nursing home, ICU, and what the best settings are. And then thinking about what you want to achieve is really autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, equity, and justice. These are the principles of biomedical ethics that should be applied 
no matter what we do in healthcare. But here they need a second look to see what we can do to balance this better and to also provide room and enough flexibility to provide personalized medicine depending on the individual status and also preferences of elderly patients that we're dealing with. And currently the French system is working on a very careful emerging ICU guidance uh, to see how that can be built for the, for the winter. And this is a work in progress, um, but just to show you that a lot of people are thinking this through and trying to balance risk and benefit uh, and equity and, and non-maleficence uh, and beneficence as well as they can. Um, I want to conclude with some uh, slides that have to do with this aspect of equity. So this is Dr. De Oliveira from Brazil, uh, uh, who really brought some striking images back to our mind that what we think is difficult to manage in the uh, so-called resource-rich uh, parts of the world can be completely different if we're dealing with uh, very challenging settings. She was speaking in particular about the slums in Sao Paulo in, in Brazil, uh, where it is, you know, when you look at your social distancing recommendations and you look at how people should be, you know, quarantining at home, if you look at a setting like this, you understand that that is not as easy as it looks for a lot of this population. And there are many cities that have parts that are disadvantaged, not only in, in Brazil, but also in, in many other parts of the world, of course. So if we think about how many people are living in these kinds of settings, how do we communicate public health recommendations? How do we make them? And how do we think about uh, who may have a high risk and benefit very much from immunization, timely case identification and treatment? Probably people who are by nature living with many others in their household, who are finding it difficult to stay away from work because if their main income is no longer there, then who is to, who's to feed the rest of the family? You know, there are lots of considerations that come, come to mind here. And it's important to think about this with compassion and to understand that what we sometimes complain about as an inconvenience uh, of, of not being able to take public transport or not being able to go to a restaurant is kind of small compared to what other people are dealing with on a daily basis. And uh, that humbling note, I think, is, is in place here. And, and as we hope to develop better tools to control COVID, uh, we also hope to uh, create better balance here in the impact that COVID potentially has on different populations. And most of you have probably heard that there have been very good studies in other countries, including Europe and the United States, showing that there's a disproportionate effect of the pandemic on um, you know, disenfranchised groups, whichever they may be for ethnic or, or social demographics. And so elderly people are not only the only group that is, uh, yeah, that we have to pay attention to. There are a number of other groups that also need our attention. Um, so that's something that is important. And with these images, I would like to thank you for your attention and uh, give over to the microphone that we don't have to my colleague who will 
now I'll give you time to ask questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Rath. Yes, we, we've gotten a couple of questions, so we'll, we'll uh, try to squeeze them in now. This first one is from Yorick, um, who asks, if you think that the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine candidates under investigation are likely to match all of the currently circulating variants um, of the virus that we have? Yeah, we, we uh, luckily, I would say we do have some good infrastructure in place with WHO, especially uh, and, and laboratories around the world who've been working on this in influenza, as you know, for a long time. Uh, you have your reference centers and your, your uh, centers that help uh, you know, the, with the design of annual flu vaccines on a regular basis. So you can just envision there are similar mechanisms in place to monitor uh, the phylogenetic evolution and the, the, the uh, development of uh, this new pathogen. And it looks like um, in the recent months, it hasn't changed all that much yet. Uh, especially, especially not in these spike regions that we are looking at with the, most of the current vaccines in development. Um, but that is, of course, a short time frame. If you think about the the evolution of a pathogen and, and what it does globally, um, and one important aspect to consider here is that vaccination in and by itself may exert some level of evolutionary pressure on the virus to change. Right, mm -hmm. so if uh, large populations are suddenly immune, either naturally because they have gone through the infection, currently that the numbers are very low with around 10% as in, in, in most European countries, that's far from this famous uh, herd immunity idea. And as we all know, the safest way to gain herd immunity on a significant level so that we can combat a virus is through immunization. Uh, but if that were to then be successful, we need to keep staying alert and, and, uh, and monitoring these viruses that do occur to see whether vaccines have to be modified or adjusted or uh, whether there's a significant evolution sort of on the side of the virus that may drift away from, from the vaccine target. Okay. All right, we have a question from David now who asks, in talking about aging populations, um, he says that um, he's hearing a lot but haven't seen in the vaccine data or protocols that have been made available how many, what proportion of elderly people are being included in those investigations. Yeah, that's exactly why I said this. I empathize with uh, these experts uh, for elderly patients uh, from the viewpoint of a pediatrician. Uh, because we always feel we come last, but this has, of course, important ethical reasons. So normally vaccine development and also drug development uh, is started with healthy young adults because you basically want to start with a population that has the lowest risk of having any disadvantage of what you are learning from, right? Uh, I was joking when I was a medical student and said it basically means young medical students, and I was one of them. I've actually been participating in, a, in vaccine studies when I was a medical student out of the conviction of wanting to do something good uh, by doing so. Um, so, you know, that it's a normal uh, process in clinical trials that we are somewhat selective in picking uh, people where the risk benefit balance is uh, most defendable and most clear. And as we progress in the development, we then carefully start including you know, patients who may have a different age bracket, 
there, you know, in, in, in the pediatric world, is something called pediatric implementation plan. So the, the pharmacopoeia actually requires that now that if something's developed for adults, there's a plan uh, to develop something for children. And I know that the colleagues uh, for the uh, elderly patients are pushing for similar, uh, for similar, um, you know, advancements, I would say. But uh, you really want to make sure you've tested something fairly far along uh, before you include patients with uh, underlying conditions or a risk based on age. Um, and that's where, you know, ultimately it will go. Uh, and, you know, you need to understand that the immune response may be slightly different as we've seen. They may not have these uh, striking ARDS pictures, but something that's less um, easy to to pick up, to say, you know, to, to, to identify as being caused by SARS-CoV-2. So our job as clinicians now, I think, is to be very careful in our observation and, and to keep prejudice out of the game. Our own prejudices are what we think a specific illness needs to look like. Uh, really look at it with an open mind and to capture uh, what we see and to remember that so that we then can understand the benefit of a vaccine and the, the delta, sort of the, the effect that a vaccine has and hopefully mitigating disease severity, uh, if not uh, at, or preventing it altogether. Thank you, Dr. Rath. And thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full conference coverage program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks.